1: University Press Books. So I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Chris Wells, Editor of Environmental Justice in Postwar America and Professor of Environmental History in the Department of Environmental Studies at McAllister College. Chris Wells, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So to start off, um, could you just tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your scholarly background, and how you became interested in environmental justice uh, and editing um, a reader about environmental justice in the US sort of post-World War II?
1: Absolutely. So the, the short version of an answer is it, it really became clear to me in the classroom that something like this would be useful. But the much longer answer has more to do with um, a, a slightly different version of the question, which is "What what's a white environmental studies professor doing um, writing a history of the environmental justice movement? Uh, and to get to the answer to that one, uh, it takes a little bit longer. Um, but I, I grew up in Atlanta, went through the public school system there. Uh, so the first the first school with a white majority student body that I attended was college. Um, and all through high school, I, I, I kind of looked at people who identified as environmentalists and rolled my eyes a little bit and, and thought that they were trying to, to sort of be activists without engaging with race. Um, and I had a little bit of disdain for that uh fast forward um when i decided that i i wanted to go to graduate school in history um i i didn't actually intend to be an environmental historian that was a a happy accident i think of wandering into bill cronin's graduate seminar on environmental history and sort of having one of those eye-opening oh my goodness, I didn't realize you could do this sort of moments. Um, and I, I sort of had this big conversion experience where I I went all in on environmental history. And my first book, which came out of my dissertation, really didn't, put race anywhere near the center of what I was doing I was I was trying to answer a question about why Americans drive so much more than than people do in other places uh, other countries and was really trying to pick apart what I was defining as the car dependent features of the American landscape and and how and why those sort of took over development practices in the united states and so race was relevant to that discussion but was not a driver of you you can't write about cars without running into these puns everywhere so i i apologize Uh, race was not a driver um although it was certainly quite relevant uh to to car dependent landscapes and especially to white flight and suburbanization those sorts of things um so when when I got to the, my own college classroom and was teaching these questions uh, or, or teaching the topics on my own, my students kept coming back to these larger questions of race, and I, I certainly encouraged them in that direction, but I didn't know as many answers as uh, a, a new as a new assistant professor. Uh, I, I felt like I needed to have answers and my students were constantly pushing me outside of what I already knew. So I began to try to wrestle with what I felt like was the most important question, which was why are environmentalists as a group so much wider than the rest of the country? Um, and as a historian, I started looking for primary sources. I started looking for answers in the ways that I have been trained to do. And I had no idea that I was working on a book. What I was really doing was collecting primary documents, both so that I could make sense of them or the questions that I was asking and so that I could share them those documents with my students so that they'd have a better idea of what was going on. Uh, And it really was framed in terms of the failures of environmentalism to be a more diverse movement uh, and and to ask a broader set of questions than it was specifically about the environmental justice movement. Um, But eventually I realized that the documents I was collecting might be useful to other people. And with some outside encouragement, I eventually realized that I was working on a book. And so that's, that's the longer answer to your question.
0: Oh, thank you. That that background is really helpful and I think uh, brings your own experience, your own humanity into, uh, into this conversation, which I think is always helpful, right? Because scholars uh, tend to be attracted to issues that are connected in some way, even if it's not always clear at the beginning to their own lived experience. Um, and growing up in a place like Atlanta, which, you know, uh, certainly in recent history has been a black mecca uh, to think about race, especially when you're in um, the kind of public school environments you were in, uh, I think is really helpful. So <laughs> thank you for sharing that. Um, so j- just to sort of define some important terms. Um, so we're talking about environmental justice, but I think hand in hand, of course, is injustice. Um so, sort of building off the last question so so what what is your conception of environmental justice um, and environmental injustice? and then um, how do you think about um, these two terms in relation to something like environmental racism, which I think you've also highlighted in your last answer?
1: Yeah, it, it, great questions. So environmental justice as a term focuses focuses attention on the movement by that same name. So I I think one answer is that environmental justice is what activists say it is. Um and and thinking about it in other terms like environmental injustice or environmental racism opens it up a little bit more conceptually and and isn't necessarily tied to the political movement with that name. So that's that's one Place that I go anyway as I sift through an answer to that question. Um, so thinking about environmental justice, the the sort of initial insight that that really sparked a lot of activism came after the Warren County protests with the with the publication of Toxic Wastes and Race, uh, publication by the the United. Church of Christ. Um, And it really, for the first time, built building on something that the General Accounting Office had done, uh, really documented the ways that toxic waste sites in particular were disproportionately located in black and brown neighborhoods. And so the idea that you could statistically document the locations of obviously problematic things, toxic waste, toxic waste disposal sites, uncontrolled toxic waste, there's a whole set of categories, hazardous wastes. The idea that you could show that these things were systematically and disproportionately located in particular kinds of neighborhoods. Um, so much so that the single best predictor of whether any individual would live in a place where they might be exposed to the, such things was race. This was a, a revelation. And that that insight that burdens are not distributed equally across different geographies was sort of crucial for the, the early activism. But you'll notice I said that that this report came out after the Warren County protests, and I feel like I should talk a little bit about those because they demonstrated that environmental justice is about much more than just unequal burdens. Um, that you know those documentable patterns of disproportionate exposure for particular groups of people. Uh, so the the quick version of the Warren County story is that uh, there was a, a a pair of guys who uh, were in a business that had a lot of toxic stuff. In this case, PCBs, and they didn't want to pay to get rid of it safely. So they decided to dump it. And they ended up rigging up a giant tank hidden by a box on the back of one of their trucks. Uh, And and they literally ran a spigot from the tank to the side of the car, and they drove up and down the highways of rural North Carolina uh, to get rid of uh, these PCB-laced transformer liquid for electrical transformers. And it just created a huge, awful, toxic mess. And the state was on the hook for cleaning it up. And when they did, they had to, after they'd collected all of the material, they needed to put it somewhere. So the Warren County protests emerged because a very poor heavily african-american county warren county was chosen over its objections uh, and without its knowledge initially as the site for a repository for all of this toxic waste which had been gathered because of environmental legislation in order to protect people from it but where they decided to put it and how they handled the process of creating a new uh, repository for it, which turned out not to be safe and turned out to leak into the groundwater and create all sorts of problems, which the activists had predicted. Um, it, it really highlighted a whole range of other issues that I think are core to environmental justice as well. So on top of the fact that, that those toxic waste repositories Tend to be distributed in very particular ways, to, and and very particular types of communities. More often than not, are the hosts for them. It also raises a, a whole set of really profound questions about um, environmental decision making processes. So it was that it was an environmental cleanup that caused all of that toxic waste to be gathered up and dumped on a poor black county in an unsafe way. And so questions about who who comes up with decision making processes, who controls them, who are the leaders, who sets the agenda is is one whole set of questions, then then another set of questions is sort of who has access to the decision making processes, what kind of participation is open and available for people if, if folks actually wanted to say hey i think this is a bad idea how is the system set up to accommodate those sorts of complaints and then to resolve them who gets to adjudicate them and and then there's a whole set of questions about whose knowledge whose environmental knowledge gets privileged in those processes is it experts and government bureaucrats, or is it the people who actually live near a place or in a particular environment and who are being asked to carry the biggest burdens of some change? So all all of those things, from the unequal distribution of burdens to the very specific ways that environmental legislation can actually increase the burdens on particular groups of people and the ways it controls access to decision-making, I think is, is all a huge part of what environmental justice is. The, the third and sort of final piece of it is that environmental justice activists expanded. They insisted that the term environment needs to be bigger than early environmentalists often defined it. So there was a lot of pressure within the, envir- the mainstream environmental movement to think of the environment primarily in terms of nature, and especially distant nature, untouched nature. Uh, and this was by no means the only way of thinking about the environment within mainstream environmentalism but it was one that a lot of big organizations that had a lot of power and a lot of membership, uh, think Sierra Club, um, tended, tended to privilege. And so environmental justice activists really pushed for us to think about the environment uh, as places where we live, where we work, and where we play. And so that's a famous line from Dana Alston, um and then people have have amended where we learn and where we pray to that as well, to, to get at institutions like schools and churches. Uh, but sort of emphasizing that everyday environments, the places where people are, are also environmental and are proper focuses for environmental activism was a, a major uh, shift that environmental justice brought to those discussions.
0: Yeah, and I think that comes out um, in your essays uh, in this book, but also in many of the sources you choose. Um, I One of my questions that I, I think you've nicely anticipated um, was basically you focus on humans. You focus a lot on human health and housing. Um, and their relationship, perhaps, to the natural world, but uh, you're emphasizing, like, urban areas, right? Not necessarily wilderness um, in sort of a traditional sense, um, or as, as many you might think of, right? Your, your advisor, uh, Bill Cronin, right? Like, he, I think, helpfully wrote that that essay, The Trouble with Wilderness, which I know is, has caused a, a lot of sort of... Um, pushback, but also I think uh, importantly, right, he was talking about how the wilderness is in an urban environment, just like the urban environment is the natural world, even if it's not always thought of in that way. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so you, you've nicely anticipated that question, so I won't belabor that point. Uh, but I, I think, you know, uh, you, you bring up topics like blockbusting, for example, um, which which I don't know if you want to describe that, but you know your emphasis on housing and redlining and sort of these policies that shaped neighborhoods so that the the people who could live in certain environments were restricted. Um, you know, you focus on racial covenants. And this is an environmental justice reader, so it makes perfect sense to me. but if someone were to you know come to this book and and sort of place the emphasis on environmental, they might be surprised that um, you are really focused at different points, not not throughout the book. Um, Uh, but on environmental spaces that are often urban um, or, you know, uh, I guess it just, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So the, the whole first part of the book, I think the title is the nature of segregation, but it follows that framework that Dana Alston provided. The environment is where we live, where we work and where we play. And so it's a, a collection of documents on housing, um, on workplaces and on recreational opportunities and the focus is segregation i mean there's that's the word for what i'm what i'm talking about and i guess there's an implicit argument readers don't don't really have clear arguments because the the voices are speaking for themselves but the framework for selection certainly was um, based on an important premise. And the premise is that when you are talking about disproportionately distributed environmental burdens, you're basically saying some places have burdens and others don't. And so to have environmental justice problems where people of color, where BIPOC individuals are disproportionately exposed to environmental burdens, it means that you actually, that my premise is that segregation, which gathers BIPOC people into particular places, is a precondition for environmental injustice, because it also happens to be those places where BIPOC people have been uh, confined is the wrong word. In certain historical contexts, confined is the right word, have been pushed, have been constrained, have been uh, guided by big institutions and laws and practices, right? The, The forces that create segregation are also the same forces that put environmental burdens in the places where they have put uh those those bipoc people um so segregation turns out to be really important for understanding environmental injustice at least for the way i understand it and and so the first part of the reader really does lay out some of the legal and institutional and social practices that created and enforced segregation with an eye on how that connects to environmental injustice. So that, that was a very deliberate choice on my part that, that reflects one of the ways I think about what environmental justice is, how it functions spatially. Uh, segregation is just a, a really big and important piece of that, to my mind.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think there's there's sort of a natural counterpoint um, in the reader um, where you, you talk about solidarity movements and um, you include sources where, you know, your speakers, your writers... Um, are referring to sort of interracial, multi-ethnic movements and how to build sort of common cause, um, which I think is, is helpful in how do you address segregation, right? It's, it requires a lot of people who are involved, if not everybody who is involved sort of in that dynamic, right? You can't just have sort of the people who are being segregated apart from sort of the institutions that are trying to segregate these other communities away from them, right? I think they go sort of hand in hand if you're going to address these issues.
1: That's right, and, and to sort of go back to the questions that I was running into in the, in the classroom, which are really about the, the failures of environmentalists um, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, to identify these problems as problems um, and, and to allow those obviously discriminatory uh systems to continue to operate and then to pretend that that the environmental results weren't being systematically produced right that 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 was the big issue i think uh that that drew me into all of this and and i guess the the flip side of that is today if if you like me are um occupy an incredibly privileged, um, position. Uh, I live in a, a neighborhood in St. Paul. It's right by the college where I teach, uh, that is disproportionately white and disproportionately wealthy compared to, to medians in either of those categories. Uh, it has a lot of environmental amenities. It does not have a lot of environmental burdens. Um, so if if I were only to pay attention to my my immediate environmental experiences as a resident of the city, uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't think that there are many environmental problems that I needed to pay attention to, uh, and so that what what you're calling uh, collaboration, um, it it if you don't see it in your immediate. Everyday life, because you live inside of a system that that distributes these things in radically unequal ways. Whether you're talking about money or environmental amenities, um, or or lack of money and environmental disamenities, if if you're not aware of that, then finding common cause and understanding the the, the systems that exist that cause those uh, unequal distributions, then it's going to be really hard to do anything.
0: Indeed. Um, so, so you're sort of getting at um, some of the the issues in this next question, um, and you have throughout many of your answers. But how does the environmental justice movement sort of overlap or differ from the civil rights movement and the environmental movement, right? Because I think, I believe uh, in your opening essay, or maybe it's Paul Sutter's essay, right? There's this discussion that the environmental justice movement is sort of, uh, I guess maybe it's the Washington Post quotation, where the civil rights movement and the environmental movement sort of got married and the environmental justice movement was born. Right. Um, so I don't know that that's the best uh, metaphor, but, um, we can discuss. <laughs>
1: uh, I am not sure it's a metaphor that works very well at all. Uh, but, but I do think it's one that people are drawn to and, and like to believe is what is how we ought to describe it. Um, so going back to the original question, um, I think that the, the environmental movement was much bigger than any one thing. And there's been a lot of great historical scholarship showing that, that environmentalism wasn't just the, the sort of big membership-driven organizations uh, that are pretty well known. Um, that that in fact it was a much more wide-ranging movement with lots more interests and concerns than the sort of conservation-directed version of things um, that that we often think of. Um, so, just to give you an example, uh, there's there's a part of the reader that focuses on the period right around the first Earth Day uh, April 22nd 1970 and which was a moment when the environmental movement sort of burst out of some of the previous constraints uh, that that had kept it in check and really became nationally prominent in in a way that set it up for a whole series of significant significant victories across the 1970s. And and if you go back to that movement and look even just at what people were saying at that original Earth Day, it's a much more diverse set of issues that people are interested in than we often associate with mainstream environmentalism. So even, even that distinction I said earlier about the conception of the environment as being a place that is mostly distant and mostly about untouched nature, you, you go back and, and you look at what people were saying at that first Earth Day, they're saying much more than that. And they're embracing a definition of the environment that is as wide ranging as the one uh, that, that environmental justice insisted on.
0: Yeah, I was struck by, um, I think it's the Ed Muskie speech, The the, what, the senator from Maine,
1: I believe? Absolutely, Um, yes.
0: Yeah, that that speech (laughs) articulated a very inclusive idea of the environmental movement that has just not matched my sort of experience, but very much matches sort of the environmental justice movement in a really helpful way.
1: Yeah, yeah. and so, so there's that Ed Muskie speech. There's, um, there's a task force report from the EPA published in 1971. It's called uh, "Our Urban Environment and Our Most Endangered People," uh, and they actually, it, it was written by a couple of interns, according to the <laughs> the front matter. Um, and the sorts of issues that they take up and call to attention and sort of say, "Hey, this is what." What the EPA needs to be thinking about when it comes to urban environments um, sound a lot like what a decade later was was being described as um, environmental justice. So before there was a movement, there there were environmentalists who were talking about these things. Um, and then there's another section in that that precedes that one, which is people who were self-identified as civil rights movement people who were talking in really sophisticated ways about environmental problems. Um, So so the amount of overlap between what civil rights people around 1970 were saying about environmental issues and what self-identified environmentalists were saying about civil rights issues had a lot of overlap. I mean, they they were basically on the same page or, or on a very similar page might be a better way to say it. Um, but one of one of the unfortunate realities is that that overlap didn't mean that the civil rights movement and the environmental movement got married to to use the term from the Washington Post article. That's not what happened. And so the, the sort of social justice approach that had been important early on in the, in the early 70s started to get paired back and, and to be refocused on other things. And the, the interest among civil rights leaders in what we might think of as environmental problems began to get paired back. Uh, and and so those movements never quite came together in the way that by going back and looking what people were doing and what they were saying, it appears they could have. they just didn't. And so that's that's one of the big missed opportunities I think for for the mainstream environmental side uh, is is that people were raising these issues, they were discussing them in pretty sophisticated ways they had ready allies among civil rights leaders and and those coalitions and common interests just never never gelled um and in fact a lot of the big victories that happened during the 1970s especially with the toxics movement um which which were designed to do things like clean up all those, all those PCBs that got sprayed onto the roadside in a fly-by-night dumping operation in North Carolina, right? Those environmental laws actually set up some of the problems that sparked the, the people of color led environmental justice movement in the 1980s. So it was the, the decade of the seventies. Had had its chance, um, and it was it was very much part of the discussion. Uh, but instead of going in the direction that we think of as the EJ direction, um, they they turned toward a more expert driven, uh, top down version of environmental governance that increased burdens on BIPOC people rather than tackling them head on.
0: Right, and I'm. I'm tempted to say it's the uh, law of unintended consequences, uh, but uh, I, I think I've I've been on this earth long enough to know that maybe some of the uh, consequences were in fact intended. Um, yeah. You,
1: you <laughs> asked about you asked about environmental racism earlier, um, and I I think that's a term that captures maybe the the intentional versus unintentional <laughs> dimensions. Um, that there are clearly places where big corporations intentionally targeted places where they th- th- that were dominated by BIPOC individuals because they saw them as economically disempowered and politically toothless so they they were specifically targeting those places because they thought they'd run into fewer obstacles um, I, th- I think we can call that racism <laughs> environmental racism and, and then the other side of that is sort of the unequal enforcement of laws so if if you've got a system that's designed say to clean up roadside waste uh, you, you would hope that whatever technical uh, safety parameters you set up to define um, a, a safe dumping space would actually be adhered to, and and part of the issue at Warren County was that they were they were issuing waivers to their own technical criteria about what was safe uh, for a disposal facility. Um, but you can also see this in things like Superfund, right? The, the EPA has pretty consistently been, and there are documented studies uh, showing this. Um, Has pretty consistently been faster to clean up uh things that are in whiter and wealthier areas than in places that are poorer and darker uh it it has also issued heavier fines for polluters in the former rather than the latter Uh, and so so that question of unequal enforcement the law the law can look like it is going to be applied the same to everybody but if the enforcement is unequal then, and, and is unequal in ways that reflect clear patterns, I, I think you can ascribe some intentionality to that.
0: Yeah, uh, again, indeed. <laughs> um, so you, you handpick sources from a variety of archives and eras uh, for the reader. Um, podcasting is an audio medium. Um, So would you mind describing a favorite source or two um, since our, our listeners are at least at this point are not yet readers of this wonderful reader?
1: Yeah. Um, Well, you, you mentioned Edmund Muskie's speech on earth day in 1970 that that's one that I still like to go back and look at because it, it highlights the, the the missed opportunities i think in in pretty powerful ways the, these are things that people knew about we're talking about we're being urged to take seriously um and and that was the path not taken um i, I think there are a lot of sources that that stand out um i don't know i th- i think about the the National Parks sign pointing to the area that it, it had formerly designated as a Negro area uh, in Shenandoah National Park. So just to, to see the open segregation being practiced in the National Park system, I think is pretty powerful. Um, there's a there's a 1972 survey that the Sierra Club conducted of its membership. It had 140,000 members or so in 1972. And one of the questions that it asked was whether club members would like to, whether the club should, and here I'm going to read it, whether the club should concern itself with the conservation problems of such special groups as the urban poor and ethnic minorities. And it reported that 58% of those polled opposed the club uh, going in that direction. Although it did note that a majority of members who were 35 or younger supported going in that direction. Uh, it was only 54%, so not not a resounding majority, but a, a clear majority. Um, and and even just thinking about how they worded that question, uh, it's so problematic, uh, but but it really highlights the ways that these were questions that people were talking about. Is this something we should do? I mean, they actually polled <laughs> their members to, to see, um, and and we can see that the overwhelming uh, answer was no, we shouldn't. Um, shortly or, or right after reporting on the demographics of the pl- club, which are whiter and wealthier than average in the United States, so I I think that there are various sources like that that are sort of powerful in the ways they encapsulate. Various various issues that thread through the reader.
0: Yeah, I, I think I've already sort of shown my cards. But the uh, the blockbusting uh, section where you have this, I get like, is it appropriate to call him a realtor? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure exactly what his title is, but where he's describing basically what I guess is selling a home. Um, in a white neighborhood to, I think, uh, you know, a family of color or, you know, a black family and basically him outlining the process of sort of, I guess, changing a neighborhood is maybe the most diplomatic way.
1: (laughs) So cynical. (laughs) So cynical.
0: And yet I I can also like that, that guy totally exists, right? He he exists today, no doubt. Um, You know, as somebody who grew up in Washington, D.C., like I, I definitely encountered that guy growing up um, as I saw D.C. transformed, you know, in the late 90s to its current state uh, where it was a majority black city. And now it's, I, I believe, officially, um, you know, black folks are not a majority in the city. And that was 20 years. And blackbusting felt, uh, you know, whatever term we'd call now, gentrification might be a uh, useful, you know, maybe not exactly the same, but certainly a related term. Um, I would also point out that uh, you reminded me of uh, Van Jones before sort of his CNN days.
1: Ah, in yeah, the Green that's a great All one.
0: Speech. Yeah, that, what, I guess at Power Shift uh, 2009, sure. I think it was.
1: Yeah, the keynote from PowerShift. That was a really powerful speech. You can find it on YouTube. So anyone who's listening to this and doesn't have access to the reader, go Go look up that speech and watch it on YouTube.
0: Yeah, you can see why the Obama administration wanted him to be the Green job Czar. Um, he may—I—I—I I, I forget the date on the uh, on the speech, but that he may have been serving in that role or about to transition. Um, of course, before he was, uh, yeah. Uh, involved in uh, sort of made up political scandal, as far as I'm concerned, and then lost the job and is now, you know, sort of the, the CNN talking head that still is incredibly eloquent and um, I think is is a great messenger for all of his causes. But at that time, he he felt like he was talking in a way that I, I think could have led to the more inclusive sort of environmental justice movement. Um, I think, you know, Ed Muskie and others were sort of articulating in
1: 1970. So Yeah yeah there's there's one other uh, i realize this is one that i have on the door to my office um so it seems worth worth calling attention to um so it's called from one earth day to the next Uh, and it's it's an image of two different people at a podium Uh, and so in the left panel there's a sign behind a A guy at the podium that says epa and the speech bubble is you have to be patient these things take time there's a bunch of angry people out in the crowd holding signs that say clean air now stop the dump um green earth and and it's labeled environmentalists across the bottom and then in the right panel it's the it's the same lectern but the EPA has been replaced with a sign that says Green Earth, and instead of EPA, it says Environmentalist. Uh, and the speech bubble says, you have to be patient. These things take time. And in the audience, we have a, a bunch of people labeled minorities, and their, their signs say Environmental Justice, Minorities Dying from Toxic Wastes. Um, and, and that... That juxtaposition and and talking about who has power and who doesn't and when and the the sorts of things that they're trying to get powerful people to pay attention to um, is is one that immediately jumped out at me when I saw it.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the larger point is uh, listeners really need to track this reader down because there are so many visuals, right? There's, there's a lot of text, but there are visuals like the Shenandoah sign um, that you just sort of have to see to believe. And you know, while some of this stuff is certainly in archives and you can track it down, um, I think this, this reader does a nice job of sort of making connections and sort of making uh, not-so-obvious connections as well. Um, so... Uh, well, I have some process questions, but I I, I do want to um, sort of stay on content for uh, at least one more question. Um, so you end the reader with excerpts from an interview with Tom Goldtooth of the Indigenous Environmental Network. Um, he mentions the relationship between uh, the environmental justice and climate justice movements, and I'm just wondering how you think sort of the environmental justice movement has evolved in this post-war period, and like how you view the environmental justice and climate justice movements in relation to each other.
1: It's a, it's a great question and I'm not sure that there is any one correct answer. I I think there are lots of relationships. Um, So I can, I can sort of tease out a couple of them just to, to, I don't know, to gesture at at what those might look like. Uh, So so one is to say that what we might think of as classic environmental justice work, which is fighting toxics and uh, sort of the ways that they are aggressively located in in places where BIPOC people live and work and play, um, continues to be a, a huge and vibrant part of what environmental justice activists do. But I think you can also see that the the term justice has been embraced by a whole host of other activist movements, uh, food justice, climate justice, just just to name a couple, um, that that are essentially taking the the insights and the orientation of environmental justice and moving beyond the particular environmental issues that sort of animated the movement early on and are bringing new sorts of more focused issues into that justice framework. So climate justice is doing that, right? It's it's sort of starting with one of the big observations that, that EJ activists had, which is that the burdens the environmental burdens are not equally distributed. Certain people will have to carry them uh, in ways that others won't, and they will be much heavier. They'll have a much bigger impact. Uh, they'll be much more destructive and disruptive for some people than for others. And the, the people who will carry the biggest burdens are, are almost overwhelmingly um more more marginal the more marginalized people in in society and that you can see that between global north and global south uh, many of the the worst climate change impacts will be suffered by people in the global south um and and you can see it within individual countries as in the united states um, so That I think that observation is one that's transferable. And climate change is a a big enough issue, a a big enough set of interconnected environmental changes that also happens to share the power dynamics. Um, Historically, the nations who are most responsible for causing these problems are the ones who've grown wealthy off of burning fossil fuels um, to to build big robust economies uh, that generate a whole lot of money and resources um, and and so the the people who've done the most to cause the problems are the ones who have the the most resources to adapt um, the ones who have done the least to cause it are the ones who who will suffer the the biggest burdens, so there's an obvious parallel there, even though the the issues are quite different from say, hey, you're locating a, a toxic waste disposal facility that's going to leak PCBs into the groundwater near my house, is is different from uh, the sorts of issues connected to climate change, and yet they're they're also entirely of a piece. Um, it's also true that many environmental justice activists have become climate justice movement leaders and so there's a there's a direct connection between the two in that sense it's it's a lot of the same people um and and doing the same work just in new venues so those are those are some of the ways that i think they they overlap and differ um but I, I I think there are others there are others too so those are more suggestive than conclusive
0: absolutely I, I realize the climate justice movement is uh, especially for a historian uh, a very new movement um, and it's it's hard to make any uh, sort of declarations it's probably hard enough to say anything uh, declarative about the environmental justice movement if you date it back to you know 1980 right so <laughs> um, so so a more process oriented question uh, the book was published in 2018 uh, your most recent sources are the, you know date back to 2017 Um, so, so I guess sort of a three prong question and, um, ah, we are running out of time soon, but I, I want to make sure this, this question is asked. So is there a source that you didn't include at the time, um, that you might now that, you know, because it's importance is maybe, um, you know, more, more obvious, um, or just something you weren't aware of. Um, and then, uh, sort of the flip side of that, like, is there a source you would add, um, based on the last five years, obviously we've, we've continuing to go through the COVID-19 pandemic. So there's there's a lot of environmental justice connections. Um, so sort of a, a source that existed at publication um, that you might consider now. And then sort of in the last five years, is there anything you would clearly want to add to this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that, those are both great questions. Um, I think on the, I'd have loved to do it and wish i could have list um, that list is way longer than we have time to go through <laughs> um, and so partly partly the answer is about having to whittle things down to meet a certain kind of um end product um, but copyright is such a huge issue for a project like this um, i spent and, and I wish I were exaggerating, I I spent almost as much time working out all of the copyrights to be able to publish this as I did um, making decisions about what to include or not. Um, they, it, it was just an enormously time-consuming and difficult process. And there's there's just a huge long list of things that I couldn't include because of copyrights. So so I think those would actually be at the top of my list. If you got if you could go back and include anything, what would you do? It would be things off of that list rather than something more recent. Um, I do think though that from the last five years, the the COVID nineteen pandemic has brutally highlighted. The inequities in American society um, that are sort of at the at the heart of the reader, and I think there are there are definitely sources on that topic that I would want to include if I were doing it today. Um, but rather than tell you what I would pick, this is actually I think my favorite assignment for the book uh, is, is to say, well, you know, if if you could add a section what would you focus on what sources would you use what where would you look <laughs> what would you want to highlight because those are really the questions that matter and i'm i'm one guy i'm I'm a white guy. I'm uh, an environmentalist um, wrestling with a very particular question about the failures of this political movement that I support uh, to to do things that I really wish that it had done, um, and to figure out how to do those things now in the present. Right. So that's that's the frame that I bring to this. But I think that that anyone coming to a collection like this. Uh, ought to pay attention to their own questions, um, and and so I'd I'd turn it back on the reader and say, what would you add? What what should be in here that's not? Where would you find it? I think those are all important questions.
0: Fair enough. Um, as as you were giving that response, I, I started sort of toggling through you know a variety of sources. Um, and I, I should probably hold off and not say anything, uh, but I, I'm tempted to say, um, you know, we, we were chatting about uh, the difference in budget uh, for a podcast like uh, the New Books Network versus, say, the Daily, uh, the New York Times Daily. And there was an amazing interview with um, one of the gentlemen who led the, um, the union organizing efforts uh, in one of the New York City uh, facilities for Amazon um, and, uh, you know, just thinking about sort of quote unquote essential workers and how they had a fundamentally different experience of the pandemic, you know, exposing their health, their bodies, their families in a way that a lot of people uh, didn't have to, because they could work at home or they could, you know, just place the order online and then just wait for, you know, the thing to show up at their front door or whatever, um, I'm tempted to go in that direction just because I think it brings together a lot of the threads of this reader, but I, I will hold off uh, <laughs> and really think about that. But the, I, I, I do encourage you to uh, to do an update or a second volume because I think this is such a rich source and hopefully some of the items you wanted will eventually be in public domain um, because it's a shame that that would be sort of uh, something that keeps uh, significant historical sources out of a book Um with this, yeah, with this value to its reader. So, um, sort of last question. Um, If listeners are interested in learning more about environmental justice, um, are there specific scholars or books you recommend? Um, You know, you obviously reviewed a tremendous number of sources, thinkers, uh, scholars. Uh, Yeah, any any, anybody or anything that comes to mind?
1: Um, Yes, in fact. (laughs) so one of one of the kind of painful things actually of of doing a book like this is that it's it's entirely based on primary documents um, so it it is not a, a deep engagement with the scholarship on the topic at least not in a way that you can see in the in the reader itself so I I think anyone who's interested in reading more, uh, there, are, there are a couple of people who've been hugely prolific uh, in their scholarship on environmental justice. Uh, so Robert Bullard is is one of one of those people who has been at this from the very beginning, um, and has has published a lot of stuff that's his own voice. But he's also been remarkable in bringing together lots of different people um in edited collections so you can pick up almost anything that he's done um and and get get a sense of uh things david pillow is another person who who's more recent um but who has done a lot of the same things that bullard did Um, in terms of sort of recent books uh that that i've found really provocative and wonderful. Um, there's a new book called waste or a newish book called waste by Catherine flowers, uh, who's, who's, uh, spent a, a big chunk of her career focused on, um, human waste, uh, and, and septic systems in rural areas, trying to, to deal with the Public health and justice issues wrapped up in that fascinating book. Um As Long As Grass Grows by Dina Gosh, I realize I've never tried to say the name out loud. Gilio Whitaker? Helio Whitaker? Giulio. Gilio? I, <laughs> I I wish I knew the answer. Um but that's, that's a wonderful book, um, looking looking at environmental justice in indigenous communities, providing a, a big history there. Um, a couple of more focused volumes, Elizabeth Hoover, The River's In Us, uh, looks at fighting toxics in a Mohawk community. Um, and Tracy bryn Voiles Wastelanding on Uranium Mining in Navajo Country. Uh, just wonderful wonderful, wide-ranging books um, that I'd recommend heartily to anyone.
0: Absolutely. And just a plug for New Books Network, uh, Dina Helio-Whitaker was uh, interviewed previously by one of my colleagues, um, I think late in 2021. So you can look that interview up.
1: I will go find it. And thank you for... Telling me how to pronounce the name. Yeah, no worries. <laughs> I,
0: I've been at a conference with her. So, you know, she she helped me. Uh, she clarified uh, the pronunciation, which is always helpful. Um, okay.
1: well, if, if she hears this, my my sincere apologies. <laughs> yes. um, and you wrote a wonderful book. So absolutely, thank you.
0: Absolutely. Um, I would also plug uh, Ellen Spears, um, who blurbed uh, your reader. Absolutely. Uh,
1: absolutely.
0: I'll be interviewing her this summer. So uh, she will be in the New Books Network Environmental Studies feed um, in a few weeks. So
1: another, another fantastic book that really looks at the environmental movement side of things. And, and the point that I was making about environmentalism being much more than the, the big green membership organizations. I was thinking of her when I said that. So another, another fantastic book.
0: I had that feeling, but I didn't want to call her out. <laughs> but this is a great time to do it. So, All right. Absolutely. Well, Chris Wells, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me. And uh, yeah, that ends another episode of the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you. That was my guest, Chris Wells, editor of Environmental Justice in Postwar America, published by the University of Washington Press. The book is now available online and in bookstores across the country. This concludes another episode of the New Books Network. Until next time.